Welcome to this recording provided by the Laurel Heights Church of Christ in McAllen, Texas. I'm Warren Berkeley. This is how the Gospel of Luke begins. I'm reading from Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely from some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty concerning the things you have been taught. May I begin by asking this question. When you need objective information on a subject, what kind of information do you want? Well, you don't want to be misinformed. You don't want to sort through a dozen opinions. You don't want to be deceived or misled. You don't want mere media sensationalism. You want the truth. If we seek to be informed on some subject, we value good information. We want the truth. I believe in this passage before us, there were at least two people who had this interest, Luke and Theophilus. Luke wanted Theophilus to know the certainty concerning the things he had been taught. Theophilus, based on this reference and also in Acts chapter 1, sought to be informed correctly about those things that pertain to Jesus Christ. So both author and reader placed the highest value on the truth, a true account concerning Jesus Christ. That was their interest. Only this gospel begins this way. Matthew begins with the genealogy of Christ, Mark simply gives his gospel a short introduction by saying, in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. John begins with who Jesus Christ is. Only Luke begins with this prologue, which is very formal, a common literary way to begin a document, and the emphasis here lies in accuracy, in certainty. Luke is introducing his topic or theme in terms of certainty, and this shows the highest interest in truth, beginning with Luke's indication of eyewitnesses. Let's talk about that. Eyewitnesses. In 1965, a man by the name of Al Primo was the news director of a Philadelphia TV station, KYW-TV. This was before cable news, 1965. In a highly competitive market, they were looking for some slogan or phrase to recraft and rebrand their news program. Al Primo called a format he wanted to introduce Eyewitness News. They implemented the new format under the title Eyewitness News. The format quickly brought the ratings of KYW-TV up as they surged 
passed the longtime leader for the first place. In 1968, Primo moved to WABC in New York, took that format with him, and today, all over the country, local TV stations use the catchphrase, Eyewitness News. What does that reflect? Well, in the judicial system, especially in criminal cases, if prosecutors have eyewitnesses, they present their case with more confidence. If the eyewitnesses agree, and there are several who report seeing the same thing, the verdict for conviction is almost assured. You will hear lawyers say, the more eyewitnesses we have who give the same testimony, the stronger our case. In the Bible, not long into the early pages of the Old Testament, you can see clearly the value of eyewitnesses. Under the Mosaic Law, you couldn't just accuse anybody of anything. It was necessary to have evidence, and eyewitnesses were highly regarded. Not only in the Mosaic Code, but in Matthew 18.16, in 2 Corinthians 13.1, it says, Let every word be established. This is all about certainty, objectivity, sourced truth. When the gospel of Christ was presented to the world and it was being given, written by inspiration, eyewitnesses came forward who had witnessed not only the life of Christ and his death, but his resurrection and in many cases his other miracles. The apostle Peter brought this up in 2 Peter chapter 1. Do you remember this statement? It connects to what we're talking about. In 2 Peter chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 16 and 17. Peter said, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to heaven by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. Eyewitnesses. There were some in Corinth who claimed there is no resurrection of the dead. Paul said there's eyewitnesses. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says there are many eyewitnesses. Listen to some of this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8, I delivered to you, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Eyewitnesses. See, the apostles didn't just make up this whole story about Jesus and the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ didn't become just a rumor that 
was traditional or legendary, defended by people who didn't know the facts. Eyewitnesses gave such powerful testimony to the facts of the gospel. Men who opposed the gospel didn't deny the facts. They went after the messengers. Simon Greenleaf, one of the greatest authorities on legal evidences, concluded and wrote many years ago, it was therefore impossible that they could have persisted in affirming the truths they had, they had narrated had no Jesus actually risen from the dead, and had they not known this fact as certainly as they know any other fact. So it was that Luke wrote to Theophilus that from the beginning there were eyewitnesses who confirmed and delivered the story of Jesus. And the testimony was and is today, he is risen. That's the testimony. Our confidence can be the same today. Everything about our faith and practice today rests on the historical fact of Christ's resurrection. The meaning we attach to being a Christian, the purpose of our work, the strength for that work, the hope that we enjoy. It is like Peter said in 1 Peter 1.13, I'm sorry, 1 Peter 1.3, His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let me go back now to Luke 1, 1 through 4, and let's listen again. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. We want to listen again. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely from for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. Luke said to his friend, it seemed good to me. There is another passage in the writings of Luke using the same expression in Acts 15.25 in the letter sent out by the apostles after the meeting in Jerusalem over issues of Judaism. It said, it seemed good to us. I take that not to imply any doubt, but to mean something called spiritual good. It's called for. It's spiritually good. We've just observed Christianity is a religion built on facts, notably the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But those facts will never have an intended force in our lives until it seems good to us. To provide this information, to deliver the message to people, to embrace it personally, it ought to seem good. Just as it seemed good to Luke, it should seem good to us to undertake the work of dispensing this vital information and holding to, with a good conscience, this vital information. With the aim and hope, the information about Christ and Him crucified will lead to transformation in our lives and to the glory of God. Now, Luke was inspired by the Holy Spirit 
One translation says he had perfect understanding of all things from the very first. While this includes his own information and research, there was perfect oversight and guidance in writing that we do not claim when we speak or write today. Yet these inspired men who gave us the New Testament were not without volition or free will. They were compelled by sincere motive to instruct people in the truth, to teach Christians that they might have certainty concerning the things of the gospel. God made certain these men had the right information to impart. We call that inspired by the Holy Spirit. Christians today need such will and motive, though we are not directly inspired. Does it seem good to you to speak to your friends and neighbors about the gospel of Christ? Does it seem good to you to tell people that Jesus is the head of one church? Does it seem good to you to encourage people to read the Bible, to have the information that was sent to Theophilus? Does it seem good to you to pray for the furtherance of the gospel and participate as you were able? Does it seem good to you to be such an active participant in this group that you take the pathway forward and you spread this message? Luke was not just a writer. He was a man not only who knew the facts from heaven, he was moved by those facts to speak what would be good for people and write what would be good for us. I believe he knew of the sin that is the ruin of the human race. He was convinced Jesus presented himself alive to many witnesses involving many infallible proofs. He knew well the events of the day of Pentecost. It was his steadfast purpose not only to understand the significance of what was happening, but to call upon others to believe and obey Christ. It all seemed good to him, and it needs to call forth our efforts in our time with good motive accompanied by prayer and every resource we can apply to the work to take what the eyewitnesses saw and what Luke wrote and dispense that in the world today. Then I want us to see that phrase again in verse 4, that you may know, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. I hope it is true of each one of us that we want accuracy. We want certainty about those things that pertain to Jesus Christ. Have you noticed in certain times and seasons there is a resurgence of interest in who Jesus Christ is? But the loudest voices seem to have no idea who he is. Every holiday season, the TV networks and cable news magazines present to their audiences the modern speculation, the recent findings, the buzz in the academic world about who Jesus of Nazareth really was. Many, many men who are called scholars will get together and report their research and debate all the revisionist questions, and you'll hear about the Da Vinci Code, the so-called Gospel of Judas and Thomas, and the various oral traditions. It seems to me 
When I watch and read about all of this, there is a strong element of, of about 50% imagination and 50% unbelief. Often attempts are made to prove preconceived skepticism. And that imprint of unbelief is so transparent, you know you're going to hear more folklore than faith, more fraud than fact. Such was the case a few years ago when James Cameron and the Discovery Channel tried to stir up another skeptical enterprise. You heard about it, no doubt, several years ago, the Jesus Tomb. Based on poor statistical analysis, implicitly corrupt historical models, and I think unholy desire to cash in. Press conferences and a TV special propelled another fraud on the public. I'm at the place where I don't believe all these sensational claims require a detailed response. Let us do what Luke did and direct people to the accuracy of the gospel. If you want to know the real Jesus, he emerges from the pages of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Instead of trafficking in presumptuous fantasy, listen humbly to the gospel accounts. Give yourself to a fresh reading of the Bible. Without the ideological framework in humanism and modernism and skepticism and cancel culture, you will find simple, powerful honesty and evidence that you can get in touch with without the exploitive academic credentials men glory in. Approach the text of Scripture with a good and honest heart, and you'll discover one who committed no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. He authenticated his power to forgive sins by giving a paralytic the power to walk. He predicted his own death, and it will come to pass, and it did come to pass, just as he said. He was a teacher from God, and he practiced what he preached. No one ever claimed what he claimed. No one ever taught what he taught. No one ever lived like he lived. No one ever died like he died. And though his own family and his own men were not ready, not ready for the event, he arose from the dead. The compelling evidence of that history, Luke says, can be known with certainty. Listen to Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely from some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. The heart of the gospel is that Jesus died, was buried, and was raised to die no more. Great significance is placed on this history in the New Testament because these facts mean we can be forgiven and live right, we can be saved and go to heaven. 
Do not be deceived by the sensational efforts of unbelievers because they cannot change history. They cannot take from you what you have from God. Read your Bible, put the truth into practice, and know the certainty of these things. If you need to respond to the Lord, would you please send us a message? Get in touch with us if we can help. We are the Laurel Heights Church of Christ in McAllen, Texas. Thank you for listening.